This is, uh, as you know, the last class before I leave town, before I skip town. I'm actually skipping the country. So uh, November 11th, I believe, will be the next one after this. I return home on the 4th, but I return home on a Wednesday. So it takes a few days before we get back. All right. So, any questions? I have uh, an email from you, Tom, but does anybody else have any questions or thoughts before we start? Tom, uh, Tom rightly observed that we passed rather lightly over Sutra number 244, it being somewhat toward the end of the evening, and we just kind of thought that a little was enough. But he raised a couple of questions that I thought were worth talking about. Um, just the, the phrase that actually was of much more interest than uh, we gave it energy for in the commentary was when he was talking about um, self-study. And this is number 244. We're back on for a moment. Self-study and introspection aids communion with one's Ishtadeva, our chosen form of God. I got, big, got very interested in the word Ishtadeva and didn't really spend much other time. But Swamiji writes... Um, God, of course, is without form, but just as he, she, has produced all forms in the universe, so God has appeared to countless saints in whatever forms they loved best. Why not? Swami writes. He's so conversational. I love that. It is not their mental creation, he says. It is a superconscious expression of the divine itself. And that, that phrase, it's really what, um, what's implied there that's so sweet is how very individual our relationship is with God. I was having some conversations. Uh, hmm. No, actually, it was, it was what Heidi said at our Celebrate Ananda event just a couple of days ago when she actually was quoting me, but just saying what was true, which is just be yourself. You know, don't imagine that you can be a better spiritual person by trying to be somebody else's version of it. And Master's comment that um, every cell is dowered with individuality. And so how he comments here that even all the way up to the way that we experience, even the way God manifests to us, is an actual expression of our unique divine individuality. As he says, it's not a mental creation. It's an actual response of the divine to our own inner nature. And, I mean, that's really something really beautiful to contemplate that God will come to you in exactly the way that your heart calls him. Um, and it, it, uh, it, it doesn't have to be dramatic for that to be true, just meaning God will comfort you in the way you need to be comforted. He will say those things to you. He will offer you those uh, vibrations that are exactly the vibrations that are missing in you. Tandava. Does any given devotee have um, a particular Ishtadeva the way they would have a particular guru that is assigned and fixed? Because I notice he says, you know, your chosen um, whatever uh, form of God is how right. he puts it. Um, and I feel like I sort of go through cycles of relating more to Master, more to Krishna, more to one of the other gurus. And, you know, Christmas time, you think a lot about baby Jesus. And I don't feel, I wonder, like, would it, 
be better to have real fixity of concentration and devotion on a particular form or to sort of flow with it as I feel like? Um, Truthfully, I'm not qualified to say. Um, So I would sort of try to reason up to it. But I think it would have to be completely natural. I think sooner or later your, your sense of the divine would become more and more personal and more and more focused. But if it doesn't, I don't think that's a sign necessarily of fickleness either, because we do have a line of gurus just even to start there. And at times different qualities are needed. There's times when uh, Shiva is really what you need, and there's other times when Divine Mother is what you really need. Um, As for it being more than that, many things that I have read have implied that sooner or later your, your feelings narrow, but I'm just beyond myself to really say it definitively. So let me know when you find out. (laughs) <laughs> and I'll let you know when I feel I can comment on it more. There's a whole bunch of stuff coming up here where I realize, wow, I'm just way beyond myself here. Yeah, we're going to have samadhi and breathlessness and dharana, dharana and dhyana and, you know, just, whoa. We're all just going to be, I'm going to be looking at this from the outside and speculating. And uh, then we'll just move right along. And if we go real fast through the rest of the book, we'll just go real fast through the rest of the book. <laughs> Or I'll pull out random little phrases that appeal to me. I had this when I was doing the Gita webinar this week too. I just suddenly felt, I suddenly just felt, uh, Tom wants the microphone. I suddenly just felt um, just so far beyond myself uh, that I was embarrassed to be sitting there. So I randomly chose small segments. Figured that somebody else out in the audience would probably relate to them. Tom, what you're going to ask. Thinking about what Tandava just said, um, of course, uh, could it be also that the chosen form of God and the individualized, you know, personal expression isn't always a particular? Yes, exactly. Form, but it's a particular relation. Oh, it's a relationship. Yes, exactly. The way God expresses to to me over the years and over the as time goes by, grows deeper and deeper and more personal and more personal as I wake up to it, as I understand myself a little, you know, a little bit more and that relationship a little bit more. That's how I would reason it out. It's not, yeah. it's not Yukteswar or Lahiri. I mean, it can be sometimes, but that's just the surface of it. What's happening is inside how he consoles me, how... He comforts me, how he guides me. That, uh, you know, I think it's that also. I think that is a very reasonable way to think about it. And more than that, Tricia wants the... It's more than that, it's a helpful way to look at it. You know, if I don't have a, a, a definitive answer, I try to think about a helpful way to think about it. I do not think it would be helpful to try to hold yourself to something that's not spontaneous. I think you have to be sincere and you have to go with the flow and just see where it comes out for you and then let it, let it have its own story and, and then discover truth because you've, you've discovered it rather than you've imposed it on yourself because that's always the theme that we're talking about. Yes? Uh, I also kind of cycle through certain manifestations mm-hmm. um, and my personal feeling is 
any time the divine wants to manifest to me, I will take whatever <laughs> I can get. Uh, and maybe it will also have to do with the particular circumstances at the yeah. time and what's most appropriate and what will work best for this, yeah. the soul. That's, that's exactly, again, what I would say. And I do... I mean, we all are, we're building this one from the bottom and we're taking this one down from the top and that's where we stand on it. And it works. And it's very, it's a very expandable position that doesn't lock us into anything that we already know but allows us to learn more afterwards. And I think that's the best way to deal with what you can't really understand because it's just too, too far outside. Saranya? When people talk about the near-death experience, which they actually now say should be called the actual death experience. I like it called the death and return experience. Oh, That's okay. my favorite. Okay. Uh-huh. Um, sometimes people talk of having seen Jesus, and right. usually those are people who are strongly Christians, but other people talk of being aware of a presence, a loving presence, and they can describe the feeling of this loving presence, but they don't necessarily see that presence, and they can't... Exactly. identify it with any one person. And so I would say that, you know, that who I might um, relate to in prayer might be one of the masters or, you know, like that, depending on my feeling. But who will appear to me at the end of my life may be um, an undefined presence, a loving presence that, you know, you may not be able to put a name on it, or it may be one of the masters or you know. That's as, as far as one can speculate, unless we we have been there and returned. Also, mm, you know, if we're not going to merge into yeah, the the infinite forever, um, we might be in the hands of some um, middle management <laughs> who's just taking care of us. <laughs> I'm not going to quibble. I'll go for the being of light. Doesn't have to have a name on it for me. It just it's it's whatever it is. It's fine. So I'm uh, just today I was reading. Yeah, I guess probably in conversations with Yogananda about the mother of one of the disciples at Mount Washington. Woody was her name, and her mother died of cancer. And Master talks about going into the astral world, and she was being led away by an angel. And she was admiring the beautiful flowers around her. And Master called her name. This is how he describes it. And, and she sort of turned. And he could tell at first that she, he, she couldn't remember him. And then he touched her on the chest and she remembered him. So it's just sort of an interesting in light of what you're saying. And then she remembered him completely. And then she, she showed her robe. She'd had breast cancer. Look, no cancer. It's all gone. I mean, this was in the astral world. You know, look, I'm healed. I don't have a sick body anymore. It doesn't say what happened after that, but somebody came to get her and then Master followed her. I feel like the, uh, the, the sincerity of our hearts will be responded to. And whatever that appropriate response, this is where I feel beyond myself. I, don't, I have no way of knowing what the appropriate response for my own or anyone else's devotion, I don't have that kind of sight. Master would know, Swami would know, but I don't know. So whatever, whoever they send is okay. I have faith that, um, that it'll be light, 
you know, we've been real nice in this lifetime. We've been real, real good. I mean, us collectively. We've done our very best and the light will be there. Uh, there's, there's Amrita over on this side. It's coming to you, Rita. Mm-hmm. This isn't any question for me because, uh, yeah. But didn't either, unless I'm remembering wrong, Master or Swami say that at our Kriya initiation that one of the Masters will be there with M- you? Master said, there's a quote from Master that says, you know, for, to those who are faithful to the end, when death comes, I or one of the others so will be there. But one of the other, you know... Right. I mean, the masters work through instruments all the way through. So I, I just can't put my mind around whether it'll be Lahiri or Sri Yukteswar or Master or Rajasi or Dr. Lewis or Durgamata or Gyanamata or Kriyananda or Dayamata for those who love her. It's, I just don't know. question that yes, it doesn't he did matter say. any of them. Yeah, it could be any of them. That's how he, he put it. That's, that's where the common sense conversation is going, is th- we don't have to be able to pin this down because we're just talking through our hats. When it does happen, it'll be great. We'll be, it'll, be just be, it'll be fine, exactly. Marella had a comment? I came across a section in the book, uh, Puruna, Pu- how, what is the title again, Trish? Puruna, Puruna Push, and there uh, Lahiri... Uh, says to a disciple, uh, don't, um, don't admire too much my picture or don't um, just look at my picture and pray for it. And then I got a little bit of a shock because all around my place are pictures from masters. And especially with all the changes I'm going through, this is my biggest strength. Wherever I look, it, there he is. And so I thought, is that the wrong thing? I'm totally focusing my whole thoughts, my views, everything every day on master. Whenever I feel a little bit offside or if I feel happy, I always focus on him. And then I was thinking, is that the right thing? Well, I'll give you several different answers to it. One of the great benefits of the way Swami Kriyananda wrote about Master, um, which not everyone who presents the teachings of a Master, including that book from India about Lahiri Mahashaya, Swamiji wrote about Master and he waited to write about Master till he could interpret it correctly. Because a Master will give many different advices to many different people. And if it's just put out there flat, without any context, it's very easy to become very confused. And so there is a certain responsibility in presenting these teachings to think about how it's going to be understood. And one of the reasons why Swamiji has not wanted to just willy-nilly make available to the public unedited, random articles, bits of writing, and so on, is because he doesn't feel that most people, and this is not disrespectable, that that it's a disservice to Master not to arrange it or to interpret it in such a way that it will be genuinely helpful. So a lot of the unpublished material is accessible, but only to people who've had a little experience on the path. You know, Kriya Bonds or people who, who, who can filter it. 
And then we're rapidly trying to put it into an order while Swami was alive, the wisdom of Yogananda series and everything that Swamiji has done. So that's, so in my mind, knowing that, whenever I read something that is even a direct quote from Master or from Lahiri Mahashaya, I always add to it my experience of words can mean many different things and in many different contexts. And Masters are known to give opposite advice to different people. Just depending, every, everybody needs to go to center, but if you're south, you need to go north. If you're north, you need to go south. The two disciples can argue with each other endlessly and do fight with each other, kill each other, and excommunicate each other. But this one was off-center to the south, and they have to go north. This one was off-center to the north, and it has to go south. So in uh, Swami's book, and that book about Lahiri Mahashaya, as I understand it, is taken from a lot of his own notebooks. And, and Lahiri did not prepare those notebooks for publication. He just created them. And as I've talked to them about on other, in other places, because I read that book as much as I was able to and as much as I was able to understand it, because a great deal of what Lahiri writes about, because what I realized, and just because I'm talking about it, this, this came out in the Guru Day retreat, that's when I was talking about it, that Lahiri's um, service to the world was to meditate. And I don't just mean his meditation was a blessing, but he explored in tremendous depth the path of God-realization through pure meditation. Everybody thinks of him as the householder. And he was the householder. He did live that life. But really, and especially the last 10 or 15 years after he retired, he just sat there and meditated and kept detailed journals of his meditation experience. And those journals are not widely available in multiple languages, and they're not widely available at all. And it reminds me when I'm reading his meditation journals, which are some of them, it's hard to tell in that book what exactly is what. But when Swami writes in the Gita commentary about how to work out your karma just by meditating and how to work out your karma just sitting in a cave and all these different things, when you've reached a certain state of uh, spiritual advancement and all you have to do is meditate to finish your karma, Swami tells you in detail how to do it. I commented when I was reading it in manuscript form, wow, Swamiji, this is not going to apply to very many people. And he very seriously answered me, yes, that's true, but those to whom it will apply, it will be very, very helpful. And so I felt, and this is just just me speculating. What's that phrase I just learned recently? I'm just saying, you know, (laughs) I'm just saying that I think that the real impulse impact of Lahiri's incarnation will be those, that deep meditation and those deep meditative journals for those to whom it will apply, but it's not quite time yet. You know, it's just leaking out now and it'll, it'll go further. That's like when someone brought to Swamiji from Master. Here, Master says, you know, meditate eight, ten hours a day and just spend a few hours doing a little God-reminding work. And we were just doing what I called kamikaze karma yoga at Ananda Village at that point, just to survive. And Swami said, oh, that's not for now, it's for a next generation. It's for future ages. It just doesn't apply yet. Now, going all the way back to the pictures, in, uh, in the path, Swami talks about, I believe it was Leo Cox, who took photographs, photograph after photograph of Master and plastered his walls in his room. Master's comment 
get to know me in meditation. So he was looking at him and saying, you know, this is all very outward, you're missing the point here. To uh, Master's uh, parents, when Lahiri gave them the photograph, or was it to another disciple, if you take this as a photograph, it's just a photograph, but if you take this as a blessing, you know, as a protection, then it will be a protection. So I think it's entirely 100% what you're doing. Undoubtedly to that disciple, that disciple needed the corrective. But to others of us, standing where we are, we're using the photographs in exactly the way that you describe. I mean, I've actually set my house up just the same. So that when the first thing when I wake up, when I look over in this direction, when I go that direction, I just, I need and want to be constantly reminded. But it's not because I want to always think about the physical bodies or something. It's that this is, this reminds me what I'm doing with my life. And I can't think of a better symbol than the eyes of Master. Why would I not want that? And I have Gyanamata and Rajasit also because there they are. You know, this is what it is to be a disciple. So it's not what you're doing, it's what you're, what you're doing externally, it's what you're doing in here. So I would think of it like that. And um, I won't say that reading that book about Lahiri is a bad idea, because it's very interesting, and I wanted to read it too. This is our line of masters, after all. But uh, you can get confused, because this is brought out by some disciple in India from a very Indian perspective, from Lahiri Mahashaya's line, from his idea of what it ought to be. And so we have to be a little careful not to pull in too many resources. And the right thing to do is exactly what you did. How does that fit in? If, the, if this is the particular expression we're following, even of the same path, we need to bring it all to a focus in one way or else we get really mixed up. I mean, just even, you know, master's own words here like this. Well, Swamiji responded differently. And if we're going to be part of Ananda, we have to think about it. You know, Master, Swami, Ananda, you have to go, sort of go all the way down and, and stay on your, stay, stay with your ray. And this is, you know, between Diamata had her family, Swami Kriyananda had his. And Norman Paulson had his, and Mr. Black had his. That's the way the Indian system always works. Every disciple has a, a way of doing it. And those who are drawn, that's when Swami said on the, uh, the legacy video that we watched the other night, most of the people have been with me before. We've, most of us have done this together. So you have to decide whether that's you or not. And then if it is, then you follow that. Good question. I'm glad you asked. Any other questions? And congratulations for knowing the Indian name of that book. Even Patricia knowing the Indian name of the book. Okay, anyone else? All right, let me just see what else was on your little list here. It says, oh, you, uh, Tom also just pointed out the, I didn't men- mention about how the traditional um, explanation of this is instead of self-study and introspection, they, they, they do say what's, what's asked of you by Patanjali is to study the scriptures. And Swamiji just repudiates that because there's no... He, he doesn't see how um, the scriptures, scriptures come and go. And what Patanjali is writing about is inner communion. And he doesn't feel that uh, just to study the scriptures is enough. 
because it's, it's what you receive after that. It's the genuine inner communion. And Tom was actually pulling out of a, the autobiography of a yogi, which I think it's nice to pull it in here, page 315. Just as it happens, it's Lahiri Mahashaya. And the great guru taught his disciples to avoid theoretical discussions of the scriptures. He only is wise who devotes himself to realizing, not reading only. Um, the ancient revelations. Solve all your problems through meditation. Exchange unprofitable religious speculations for actual God contact. Clear your mind of dogmatic theological debris. Let in the fresh healing waters of direct perception. And then he has this wonderful line that I've quoted many times. Attune yourself to the active inner guidance. The divine voice has the answer to every dilemma of life. Though man's ingenuity for getting himself into trouble appears to be endless, <laughs> the infinite succor is no less resourceful. That's the line I always love. Okay. So, now we have done justice to 244. Because I myself knew last week that I was rushing through it just to say we had done it. <laughs> yes, Trisha, go right ahead. If we're not finished, it's no problem. We're in no hurry here. We're getting into deep waters, and I don't mind hanging around where we can still swim for a while. <laughs> I've heard the term, I think it's samyana, 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 which is introspection and self-study. Is that something different from... Actually, I don't know the word samyana. Do you know what... Okay, and because... So what, what you mean is... Given her pronunciation, you think that's the word? (laughs) Sorry about that. I think it has something to do with the um, watching everything that goes on in your life. That's what Samyana means? I'm not sure. I was asking you. (laughs) Well, ask our resident scholar here. What? You understand the... Sai Ganesh says that he feels that that is an accurate um, interpretation of that word. Or close enough, yes? Yeah, that's what... Uh, Say it again. Samyana. Samyana. Yeah. I think it's a, a yoga studio nearby. It's called Samyana. <laughs> I mean, why not? When we get to Asana, we'll make a few comments on that, but why not? <laughs> but... Say again, introspection, watching everything that happens in your life. That's how you defined it. I think that's a wonderful definition. Yeah, watching everything that happens in your life is a perfect definition of introspection. It's much better than analyzing your motives. You're watching everything that happens. You're not just asleep and letting it go by. You're paying attention to what your life is about. You're seeing the cause and effect relationships. You're watching the result of your own actions. You're seeing the play of God in your life. You're seeing who you actually are in relation to the world around you. The incapacity to to see ourselves objectively is just a a stunningly huge um, obstacle, both to success in life and also to the spiritual path. If we don't know who we are and what we're doing, it's difficult for people to help us, it's difficult for us to make right decisions, it's difficult for us to... Uh, recognize, you know, as I say, cause and effect. If I think that I'm this kind of person and I'm really coming across like this, then we have to reconcile those and really live in the calm truth about things. The mind is blinded if the heart is afraid. 
That's what it really comes down to. If the heart is afraid, then we don't think very clearly. But if we really watch what happens in our lives, well, these people get, you know, every time I speak like this, these people get really upset with me, don't they? Hey, even though I think of myself as really great, I got fired from my last four jobs. I wonder why, you know? These are like clues that you have to kind of like think, what might be the implication here? And the implication might just be I'm in a bad karmic cycle. I have an afflicted thus and so, whatever it might be, but still we have to watch. Did you have something else, Tricia, that you wanted to ask there? I think, oh, also, just, just because you asked about that, you know, the, the idea that you're supposed to study Scripture is the kind of imposition that's put on Scripture <laughs> by people who are more intellectual than um, uh, mystical. And they just, you know, it just becomes people who do not, and this is what happens to, it's not on, this is what happens to um, revelation over the course of generations, which is why the masters have to keep reincarnating. This was my, excuse me a minute, Trisha, and then you can speak, but my um, Episcopal priest friend with a divinity degree from Yale. Okay? And he explained to me, he explained to me when I asked him a certain question about Christianity because I was curious, something I'd read in the Bible, I knew he was my source. And he told me that the full teachings of Jesus were not manifested for several centuries. It was several centuries later before the full understanding was really there. And he's a Creobon, my friend. I looked at him. So let me get this straight. We have an avatar, a fully self-realized master, but it took 300 years of theologians to really figure out the truth of what he was saying. He himself didn't know. (laughs) And my friend sort of smiled at me and talked about how easy his life was before he met me. (laughs) Because that's how we think. But study of the scriptures, then who interprets the scriptures? Oh, the pundits interpret the scriptures. The priests, the church... And so gradually, even the whole sutra is shifted. So that, because now you have to have spiritual authority. It's not your direct communion. It's this book. And what does this book mean? Well, these people tell you what this book means. And because as you come down from Revelation, smaller and smaller minds, even, even sincerely meant, with no ill intention, they just bring it to what they can more easily grasp. And then that becomes the orthodoxy, and then everybody defends the orthodoxy after that. Thus, when virtue declines and vice predominates, I, the infinite Lord, take visible form to restore the Dharma. Um, The noble taper of inner communion burns low and is ill-attended. Let us together, united in Christ's love, set that light ablaze again. It's just what happens. We don't have to get really agitated about it but we have to be conscious of it. So that's why Swamiji, I mean, he, I mean, he doesn't mince words. He, re, he re-interpreted, re-translated, re-articulated these. I mean, and he calls the alternative laughable. I mean, he didn't really want to say it was even well-intentioned. He just said it was laughable because the consequence of this, of perfection, of this attitude cannot be studying the scriptures. It has to be self-knowledge and inner communion. There's no way, otherwise, it doesn't connect. It's just impossible. Tricia? 
does your thought, are you remember it? <laughs> I think I still have it. Mm -hmm. um, it's about the uh, introspection and the awareness of everything mm -hmm. that happens to us. And I find that it's all getting mixed together in my mind. I'm, my mind wants to pull together um, teachings of mindfulness, uh, being in the present moment, awareness of being aware, and also jnana yogi, yoga, because if you're going neti neti, you are being aware of everything in your life that is happening to you at the same time. Does that make, so are you, I'm just feeling like I'm, I'm not exactly, I'm sort of doing A equals A equals A. Um, it becomes a matter of personal taste. Okay? Um, I would have indigestion. If you don't have indigestion and it works for you, um, if it's working for you, I can't object to it. It can be simplified. Um, what I'm partly responding... I don't like to be too dogmatic about it, but it does help to simplify. Um, whenever someone says to me, this is great, you'll love it. It's just like Master's teachings. I'll think, if it's just like Master's teachings, why don't you just read Master's teachings? <laughs> but I know that people find inspiration where they find it. But I find it, I find it easier to simplify. I prefer to have the tapes in my mind be one voice. But it's, it's not that I've never read anything else. But when I'm really trying to think of what to do, I just prefer to have one tape in my voice instead of one voice, one tape in my head, one voice in my head instead of trying to knit too much together. But it's, you have to buy their fruits, you shall know them. That's the actual answer. But you see, then we also get into another element, which it isn't just self-effort, it's also attunement. And whatever we're studying, we're also picking up a piece of that consciousness. And so we have to decide. We you know exactly just, and again, people can be very dogmatic about this. I don't like to be. I feel like it's, again, it's one of those things where let experience be the one that tells you how it'll work. On uh, September 12th, I was talking about Ma Swamiji and Ananda Ma and how deeply inspired he was by her, how close he felt to her, and how much he felt that he was acting out a relationship as a more mature devotee that he was too young to have with Master. I mean, that's, he, he talks about her so beautifully. I talked about being a young devotee and wearing a little picture of Ananda Moima around my neck and feeling a slight, uh, just aberration in the field. And I, had, I took it off. And when I took it off, I felt better. Because it just, there's nothing, it has nothing to do with her. It just had to do with me. I just was too tenuous in my hold on my own path to confuse it. And... You know, Swami Satchidananda, who was a very popular and lovely Swami who was around in the area at that time, and everybody went to town to hear him and I decided not to because I just didn't feel that I could take input that wasn't exactly the note I was trying to sing. It was just a, a real honest appraisal. There, at other times I had felt differently, but I really, I just had to be careful because I, I, instead of being inspired, I got confused. I got diluted was actually what I felt. So, and, but, you know, as I said, that doesn't mean that I've never opened another book, because I have. I especially like books about saints. I'm reading Joan of Arc right now, and I'm about to read about Milarepa. 
you know, so it's not like there's no one, but I'm not asking them to guide me, and I'm not trying to learn the teachings through them. I'm just being inspired by people who loved God. So that's kind of how I draw the, the different line. My question goes back to introspection. Um, it's probably two parts to it. My, I'm, I'm trying to understand what the true meaning of introspection is, because when I observe my own thought process, uh, the heart is always closely related to how we think. So sometimes just thinking is also investing energy into our own likes and dislikes of, yes, of things. Is. There you have the problem, don't and, you? And the yeah. second part of it is obviously, it's, is, is there a negative side of introspection? Is, can there be too much introspection that's just not helping us? Yes, definitely. Um, this is why the element of grace and attunement has to be part of the story. You just essentially described it. The mind is poisoned with the very problem that it's trying to solve, which is, it is, you know, our own awareness is bound to the likes and dislikes of the ego, which you're saying exactly. The prejudices of the heart, Master says, reason always follows feeling. So whatever we're biased toward, we tend to support with our reason. So you can't merely spin your own thoughts and expect to arrive at some objective truth until you have also, unless and until you are also purifying the heart so that the heart will not prejudice the mind. Um, So that's why, you know, this is where Swami himself even says, as I believe, uh, even self-study there has to be, obviously there is more meaning in both self-study and introspection than either of these concepts suggest. And then what he, he calls is, it must mean self-awareness of some higher kind. So um, too much introspection can simply become self-centered self-absorption, in which one is constantly referring everything back to self in the name of understanding self, but it's just one of those ego's clever ways of just spinning you in a circle around itself. And by their fruits ye shall know them. And so, you know, to be aware is not the same as to constantly analyze and obsess. So basically, I understand it is what mostly people call introspection is not introspection because we're not stepping back completely. No, you see, it depends on who you are. Everything is directional. Many people pay no attention to what's going on in their life. They, don't, they, forget, they forget the morning by the afternoon. They forget the afternoon by the evening. They don't understand why so-and-so is so mad at me. They don't understand why I constantly get fired from my job. They didn't notice how rude they were being. You know, they just aren't paying any attention to anything. So everything is, is directional. And we need to become more and more aware... This is what I was talking about whenever I was talking about it on Sunday, about um, that which serves you up to a certain point serves you and then that tool becomes no longer useful and you have to abandon it for a higher one. So it's all directional. And that's why Swami himself says they can't possibly just mean self-study and introspection. They must mean something deeper, which is a genuine superconscious perception of my own karmic condition. But, but what happens on the spiritual path, I believe, is that one, one really, once you have a certain working knowledge of yourself, you become extremely uninteresting to yourself. 
It's just like it is so boring. Once you've unraveled it, it's like you just don't care anymore. And it's more of a, um, it's given to you to know. And at a certain point, because I was so into self-analysis, which was really almost self-obsession, you know, everything was, everything circled. You could, I was self-centered without being selfish. You know, my, I was the center of my universe. I was a pretty, you know, that I was a pretty nice girl, but nonetheless, I was always the center of my universe, and, and I was always unproductively analyzing. And at a certain point, after God knows how many years of whatever, I gradually began to realize that it was not necessary for me to apply my mind to a situation, because when I needed to know, it would come to me. You know, I'd gone far enough in what you might call establishing my willingness to know the truth that I would find that when I needed to know it would come to me, I didn't have to sort of hang out there and try to figure it out. And the ones that needed to be reflected on always made themselves known. And then self-forgetfulness was really a far better policy. That was when, that was when I realized that that word self-forgetfulness is a really the best word. It's just you just forget about yourself. You're just contemplating something far more interesting. And yourself takes care of itself when you're not worried about it. And you just can go through these marvelous, wonderful cycles of, um, well, self-forgetfulness. That's also the advantage of the, of the brahmachari life. is because you don't have anybody always reminding you that you're there. <laughs> Which when you have family and children and spouses, they're always reminding you that you're there. They're always calling you by your name and relating to you personally. And when you are solitary in your personal life, nobody ever does that. Nobody constantly affirms you. And that's really, it's tremendous freedom in that. And that's also why, you know, as marriages mature, there's a lot less of, oh, darling, you're so beautiful this morning and I'm so glad you live with me. You know, because then there's always that. That's what I was trying to say when I was speaking at Spiritual Renewal Week. And I I didn't feel like I really said it properly. But I was talking about, you know, Nayaswami marriages, we're not pulling toward each other anymore. We're, we're both pulling toward God, even though I would have said that all along. But there's an even deeper, you know, I no longer exist as a separate entity. I mean, how you, how you cannot exist as a separate entity and still be married is a very interesting reality. And it, it's really different. It is not the same. It isn't just a question of now we're nice swamis and we wear blue. There's a, a real huge shift. And that's why Swamiji wouldn't uh, uh, said no one who is raising children. Uh, he wouldn't let them be even Tiagis. That's why he created the pilgrim vow in the new renunciate order because they were trying to be Tiagis because they felt left out. But he said, if you're raising children, you must relate to your children in a personal way that is not appropriate for a Tiagi. That's how he actually put it. And it's very interesting to contemplate for brahmacharis and sannyasis and tiagis. Like, oh, well, what does that mean? I mean, if you're, if you're singular in your life, it's simple. But if you aren't, um, you do have a partner or you do have children, what does that mean? But he said, interestingly, he said, somebody raising children has to be personal about those children. You can't be that impersonal with your children because it hurts them. They need you to be personal about them. That's the nature of it, at least when they're small. Master said, after your children become adults, 
forget that they were ever your children. Which every parent I've ever said that to does exactly what you all did. Ha, ha, ha. You know, he said, and treat them like any other adult friends in your life. But I, no, no parent has ever told me that that was even remotely possible. And I have no children, so I can't speak about it. And I've certainly, well, for the most part, observed that it seems to be a really hard thing to do. But nonetheless, that's what he said. But Swami said the opposite. When they're small, you can't be that impersonal about them. Interesting. All right. Let's take a break. I must confess, I feel like I'm on the home stretch before November 11th. (laughs) (laughs) Not that it's, you know, nothing matters. It's just like it's the same... It's going to be the same story no matter where, but it's a change of scene. Okay. Um, so, can we go on to 245, or do we have more to do with 244? Okay. So, number 245. Oh, oh dear. <laughs> We're... <laughs> okay, 244, 46, 47. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, number 245, because people who are watching this as a recording don't know why we're laughing. It says, by complete openness to God, samadhi is attained. And we are really happy to hear that. Pardon me? It does say it all right there, and that tells us where we're going. Okay. So, um, Swamiji um, now makes a distinction about something I can talk about. Most translations say by complete surrender to God. And then he says what he often says about surrender. It suggests someone who finds himself with his back to the wall, escape impossible, and finally as a last resort and only to save his life, is surrendering himself to an enemy. I mean, that's actually, I love it when I read Swami's things over and over again, because surrendering himself to an enemy is another part of that. Surrender implies that, I mean, I've I've always thought about that back to the wall, no choice. But of course, when you surrender, you're surrendering to an enemy. You're not, I mean, often, that's the implication of the word. None of these images applies to someone who himself desperately desires oneness with God. This then is what I mean by complete openness. Yes, we must and must desire to give ourselves to him completely when there remains no corner of our selfhood that we hold back from God, then alone can samadhi come. That's really just a beautiful paragraph, isn't it? And it really tells us where we're supposed to be. I um, was talking this morning a little bit about Swamiji's uh, first encounter with Master, which when he, on September 12, 1948, when he was kneeling in front of Master and asking to be his disciple... And Master asked him, you know, certain questions about himself. And Swamiji could feel, as he described it, Master reading him. And, and Swamiji describes in, in his written description of that meeting how he, he was inwardly praying to Master, you know how I feel, I can't really say it out loud, I would only weep. Master asked him certain questions about himself. And he answered them all completely truthfully because he felt, you know, what is it that he doesn't know? 
what, what, what could there be that he doesn't know? There's no point at all in trying to present myself, trying to win him to me with the idea that I could hide something from him. And, uh, just a moment, I've lost the thought briefly. Um, and, then, and then later on, later on in his life with Master, when he talks about how Master demonstrated that he could tell what Swami was doing even at a distance, and when Swami expressed surprise that he, he was repeating back to Swami a remark he'd made when Master was nowhere around, and Swami said, you knew. And Master said, I know every single thought you think. And then Swamiji had to reflect on that. And there would be a natural, or an understandable response of, a, of to be a little dismayed to realize that the man in front of you, who is indeed your guru, but still he's the, he's the power in front of you, that you're utterly known to him. And Swamiji talked about how relieved he was, just completely relieved to know that Master was that much inside his consciousness that every single thought was known to Master. And there, there was no um, inclination on Swami's part to be ashamed or to be dismayed by that. And now that's what we're talking about, you know, this kind of openness. And of course, that potential is there for all of us. We don't have to be physically in front of Master to be able to have that. Um, when, when Swamiji was talking about that specific story once, I know every single thought that every one of you is thinking, his disciples. I said, Swamiji, is that still true? I asked Swami. Oh, yes, he said. Of course. That's what he said, of course. Was, that's really quite something. Now, whether that is a dynamic relationship of constant um, guidance and transformation, or whether that is the master just waiting for us to have that deep desire to be open and therefore to be transformed, that's whether or not we receive him. And speaking of the death and return stories, that's the, one of the fabulous parts of Dr. Ritchie's death and return was when he was 21 or 22 and died in the influenza epidemic at World War II and he goes, and he's in front of Jesus, and he is in a 360-degree panorama of every incident of his life from his conception. And he's watching himself, and he's only 21 or 22, and he hasn't had much life. And Jesus says to him, how much did you love? And Dr. Ritchie realizes that he has loved very little. And he can see from the panorama choice after choice he made, which was to be selfish and enclosed and ungenerous to the people around him, many things. He saw how small-minded he was, and he was, he was embarrassed. In fact, he was mortified at what his life looked like standing in the presence of Jesus. And then he tells that story about there was one incident having to do with being an Eagle Scout and something that he did, and he, he walked over to point to it and tried at the same time to block some of the other images. I mean, this is the story of your life review with Jesus. And as he did that, he realized that his motive was entirely transparent, that Jesus knew the whole story, 
that he was carrying on in that moment. And that was when he says that wonderful line with his southern accent, the Savior was amused. (laughs) And when the Savior was amused, Dr. Ritchie just dropped all of that. He dropped everything and was able then to allow what Jesus was trying to give him to come into him because he became completely open. I mean, you could call it surrender. He surrendered to the situation instead of resisting it, but he really saw that the Savior was not judging him or sending him to hell. He was saving him. He loved him. He was smiling at his foibles. And so he completely then opened and embraced this reality. And then the, you know, the wonderful story, that book used to be called Return from Tomorrow. It's really the best of any of those books that I've ever read. It's just marvelous. And from time to time you can find recordings of Dr. Ritchie telling his own story. They're, they're really marvelous, the whole way he describes it. Now there's another point there that I'm trying to find. Let me think about it if I find it. Well, it's not quite. It's not quite coming to me. So I'll just go on from there. Um, There's so many uh, people who work with, and I mean, it's a theme of of mine that I'm always putting forward because I think I have. You know, we talk about what we've suffered ourselves, and I think the. I'm not good enough syndrome is a, is a mental syndrome that has been part of what I've had to work through in this incarnation. And so I'm extremely sensitive to it. And I'm reminded of this also. I remember what, many years ago, like, you know, 35 or 40 years ago, when Ananda first started yoga teacher training courses. Actually, Jyotish and Devi were teaching those courses way at the beginning. Or at least Devi. I'm not sure if Jyotish was with her or not. But she, I remember her saying, and the course was so many weeks or so many months, they were long courses, and she described the fact, these were her words, everybody who came was an angel. And she thought at the beginning that she had to convey all this information to them. And she worked really hard to get the information to them. She gradually realized that they were all angelic in their sincerity, and her job became for them to appreciate their own goodness. And she realized that the information, nothing really mattered. If she could inspire them to accept and appreciate their own goodness, then she had accomplished what the Course was about. Because it's, what is it that keeps us from being open? It's, it's almost always a sense of inadequacy, a sense of shame, a sense of just let me get the house cleaned, over, cleaned up a little bit and then I'll invite you over but not until I've got it really in order. But the the paradox of that is, of course, you can never get it in order, ever. The definition of it not being in order is that you're not open to God's presence. And it's it's when we, because not not having your house in order, being focused on that makes you egoically self-defined. And when you just, you know, open your arms, open your heart, and open your mind, and realize, well, a woman friend of mine, Nish, uh, Nananda, she was called then, she's become Nishala Devi, she used to travel for Swami Satchidananda's ashram. She didn't live anywhere, she just traveled and taught for, she did it for quite a few years. 
She lived out of a suitcase. She was quite impressive doing that. And I, she was a friend, and I met her in various cities because we were both traveling at that point. And we happened to coincide, and we were very happy to see each other. So we spent quite a lot of time together that day, and it was getting close to the time for her class. And uh, I said to her, well, do you need some time now to prepare? And she sort of, she looked at me like this and just smiled like this and said, what you see is what you get. (laughs) And she said, too late, too late. (laughs) And I've always just remembered that because it was just so like, you know, if I'm not ready now, another half an hour is not going to really save me. This is it. This is it. Of course, you know, meditating before class and so on is not a bad idea. But the way she interpreted it was just so lighthearted. She's also the one who told me the marvelous story about uh, she was put in charge, I think, of their retreat. And she herself said that she was not a good administrator and not good at just sort of organizing and carrying this thing on. She was much better, as she put it, is just loving them and leaving them was her phrase. (laughs) You know, just kind of being there for a while and then going on. The long, continuous uh, kind of push to make something happen just wasn't her strong suit. She was very becoming increasingly anxious. And she said she, uh, she finally had a meditation and she talked to her guru, she was Satchitananda. And inwardly, she said, this was not outwardly, inwardly she said, you want this job done badly? I'll do it for you. You'd want it done well? You get somebody else. <laughs> and then after that, she felt it wasn't her problem. That this is what you see is what you get. So I'm going to do my best, and as long as I'm stuck here, I'll just go along. But this is just not my talent, and what can I say about it? And every time, you know, the, the, the openness that finally leads to samadhi is not something that kind of at the last moment we grab. It's the openness just even right now to just be comfortable with wherever we are and whatever we're learning. The Master himself has been here. That's why I've been so intrigued by that thought, which I bring up often because it's, you know, it's the flavor of the month for me, which is, wow, whatever vibration of consciousness, whatever mix of delusion and understanding, you know, if you, if you could chemically analyze it and say what percentage of her vibration is just totally in Maya and what percentage has a glimmer of light, it's an equation of some sort, you might say, or a particular... Um, when I think of the astral world where they say um, you, can, uh, you can look up and see higher worlds, but you can't ascend into a vibration more subtle than the one you have. This is how people will describe the astral world. More advanced beings can descend into grosser realms in order to help bring people up but you can't go higher than your own vibration, but you can sort of see it. Isn't that intriguing? You can kind of, so it's, you know it's there and you can kind of aspire to it, but you have to refine your own vibration before you can merge into it. And of course, when you're there, you're there and you keep moving upward. Isn't that beautiful though? I love that. That's why the astral world is nicer than this one, is because it's, homogeneous vibrations instead of heterogeneous vibrations, like we share this planet with a lot of really icky people right now, and where all these vibrations are all mixed up. But in the astral worlds, it's homogeneous. You're with your own people. 
all the time. It's very relaxing, just like going to an under village. <laughs> you know, it's just very relaxing, you know, that the music is not going to be horrible and nobody's going to be drunk on the street. And it's just like lots of very relaxing things, right? To say the least. You know, that's the least you can say. But you're in your own vibration. That's one of the reasons it's so just marvelously relaxing, rejuvenating. We don't realize how much we're, you know, we're always pushing our vibrations out sometimes to hold other vibrations at bay. That's the principle of going off to the ashram. And that's, it's a good principle because you can uh, really get deep because you're not having to waste energy trying to counter all the time. But trying to counter vibration. Going off to the ashram? Yeah, that's as opposed to being in the missionary field. We're in the missionary field. But we have the ashram too. So we have the best of both worlds, let's call it that, since we are here, and God seems to have glued most of us to the spot, and we'll just stay here, chained us, as it were. Um, but, uh, let's see, where we, I was talking about... Oh, I was saying, it's not something that happens all at once just suddenly that you're completely open. It's, it's on a moment-to-moment basis. And it's how we deal with our own failures, how we deal with our own embarrassments in front of other people. You know, when we've done something that's really wrong and we know that we've done something really wrong, do we just step into it and just, here I am and this is what it is? Or do we just kind of try to hope that we kind of point to the good things and hope that the Savior doesn't notice? You know, one of the things about the Ananda communities all of them, which are just so stellar, is the way we easily accept each other's difficulties. I mean, I've, the stories are just, and they're so consistent, but they're amazing. I mean, one altercation, I will call it an altercation, a misunderstanding between two people. You know, tempers flared. There was really strong feelings about this one not behaving properly, and it was, the accusation was fairly accurate. You know, this one had behaved in such a way that it caused a lot of grief for this one, and this one had tried hard, but he was just fed up, and, you know, the whole thing goes like this. But then finally, when people come together after vibrations have settled a little, it's nothing but, I just want the best for you. You know, there's no pleasure in pushing the other one down, and there's no deeply held desire to finally be vindicated. It's as fast as we can. Let's all get back to our Guru Bhai connection and loving each other. I mean, think how powerful that is, you know, for the progression of our souls, both having the opportunity to practice it and also having the opportunity to being on the receiving end of it. Because we have the past lives of all men are dark with many shames. We have so much of that that we're carrying and we do get to practice with each other. It's not like, you know, everyone loves us like God loves us, but when you have the kind of guru by connections that we really have, and you get to practice just opening up and just letting it be what it's going to be. This is a phrase that I've coined for myself that I like very well. I may not be proud of what I did, but I'm not ashamed either. You know, it was just a necessary stage on the path. And now I hope, by the grace of God, I've learned something. And we won't go there again. But if we do go there again, well, what you see is what you get. What can I do? 
I would be better if I could be better. And openness to God is just that kind of openness. As Swamiji said once, to be so shocked that we can make mistakes, that we have to obsess about them, is just egotism. Why would we be so shocked when our, that, that we have imperfections that can be revealed? You see how interesting and sound that is? And otherwise we just have to say, well, of course I make mistakes. What do you think? When someone came to me once to complain about how incompetent I was as a leader of this community. And, you know, not all his points were wrong. A lot of them were really true. But the only thing I could think of to say back was, do you think if I was perfect at this job, I would still be doing it? It's like, yes, and? Where can you go from there? Of course we're just going to keep stumbling. And if we define ourselves by our openness to God and our openness to learn, you see how much freedom there is in that? If we imagine that God and Guru Bhais and life itself expects us already to be perfect, how can we ever learn anything? In our... uh, uh, A friend of mine, one of Helen's uh, siblings, her sister works in a high school in the city and she runs a special program that helps with cultural, bridging cult, uh, uh, cultures. Because so many children come into the schools from all parts of the world now in a city like San Francisco. Their families get transferred and a child of high, this is in a high school, children of, a child of high school age who's done all his education in one system suddenly comes into an American system and it's very, very different. And Helen was telling me this story about a, a couple of, of children who'd come from China and her sister had to or- orchestrate a, um, almost a mediation session between the teachers and the counselors and the students. And this is what came out of it. In China, in the, where these children were raised, it was considered extremely... Uh, uh, you, you lost face. It was very bad if you gave a wrong answer. So even in the classroom, the the problem would be explained and then the children would be told what the answer was. And then they would have the answer because that was the cultural context is that here's here's the problem, now here's the answer, now you memorize the answer and then you will always have the right answer. They come to the American classroom and the teacher wants people to chat and speculate and guess and reason. And these, these students were absolutely paralyzed because the worst possible thing they could do would be to open their mouth and give the wrong answer. And not only were they personally paralyzed, they were just completely uh, dumbfounded by the whole thing that was going on around them. You know, what, what could these teachers possibly want from them? And how could they possibly succeed in such a completely crazy system? No, I mean, that's just a cultural thing I'm describing, but when I heard that, it resonated a little bit, doesn't it? You know, we don't necessarily want to put ourselves out there and guess, because what if the answer is wrong? We don't want to say, you know, I felt guided to do this and it really didn't work out very well, did it? My guidance, there was something flawed about that. Or we don't, we're nervous. I mean, the path of self-realization as Ananda practices it is not for sissies. 
because there's just no clear answers. I mean, even the question that Tricia was asking earlier, I, I don't really have a clear answer to it. I mean, there's other branches of Master's Path where you do have clear answers. But on this path, you have to, and the first, the first quality of the devotee is courage. You have to have the courage to go with what you know, to put your whole energy behind what you know, and then be extremely interested as to how it turns out. Swamiji, the most dramatic example of it, it was with Swamiji's whole story of trying to get land in India to build a temple for Master in New Delhi and getting Nehru himself to agree to it, and then that was the reason he was expelled from SRF, for the ostensible reason. That was the catalyst that got him expelled, let's put it like that. Swami told that story for 25 years, and then at one point he added a most fascinating phrase, Well, he said, when I was beginning that project, I didn't clearly feel Master's blessing on it, but I thought I would see what would happen if I went forward, because I didn't feel his his caution, and I couldn't think of what else to do, so I just thought I'd see what happened if I went forward in that way. And all I could say was, what courage? I just, I need to find out. So I'm just going to find out. I, I was saying the other night about people writing music and so on. Somebody was asking me, could he write music? Sure, I said, write music, write plays, do anything. Be as creative as you like, but then be open to other people's comments. If you're just going to be creative and somebody once did something that was not universally supported and he insisted that he felt guided by God to do it, I suggested to him just as a matter of strategy that it would be better if he didn't make anybody who disagreed with him being against God. You know, that, that put everybody at a slight disadvantage. You know, you, you can't really have a real calm conversation about it. Um, so, you know, with us, you can say, well, this is how I felt it. Well, yes, this is how I felt it, but how did you feel it? This is how it seemed to me. I was acting sincerely, but how does it look to you? So we practice. I mean, as Master said, you don't want to reveal your faults to everyone because not everybody has the maturity to use that knowledge well. Sometimes they will use it against you in a moment of anger, was how Master put it. But at the same time, you can practice on both sides. You practice being open to God. You practice being open to God in everyone around you. And the more easily you can just let it go, Just be right sometimes, wrong sometimes, wrong all the time, but sincere all the time. The closer you'll move until that openness is complete. And samadhi is attained. So they promise. All right. Is that it for tonight? Okay. Thank you all very much. We did two of the sutras today. We did 244 and 245. Okay, so tomorrow, next time we get um, asana. I'm a little more confident there. (laughs) Okay.